I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Just a heads up, there are a few loose swear words in this episode, so on with the show. Sam, give me a jibber-jabber. Hey, this is Sam. I'm sitting here at this microphone. Had cereal for breakfast because I was lazy. Classic. Yeah. Um, okay. What do you have for breakfast when you're not being lazy? Eggs. Oh, look at you. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. And I'm in here with Annie Ropeek. Hi. And Erica Janik. Hello. Uh, who I need to introduce both of you because neither of you have been on the show before. It's so exciting. Yay. <laughs> Maybe actually, could you introduce yourselves? Yeah, I'm uh, the energy and environment reporter here at New Hampshire Public Radio. Uh, I'm, I'm the new Sam. <laughs> Sam used to be me, and now I'm Sam. <laughs> I think that you can just be Annie, but... Okay, I'm just Annie then. I'm the new Annie. And Erica? Um, I am the executive producer of the creative production unit here at NHPR. Yay! Yay! <laughs> um, so we are gathered here today because we've got a bunch of updates to our older stories that we want to talk about. I'm very excited. You know what? They refuse him to pass the game. <laughs> That's what happened, guys. We know our people. I know the game. It's a big discrimination in Quebec against the First Nation. We know that. We live here. We feel it just by the way they, they look at us, you know? We feel it. That's why that happy. And so Annie's here because we're going to start with the Powerline series. Um, so for those who haven't heard it, I recommend you go back. In November, we did this four-part series about Canadian hydropower and the history of, of the development of it as sort of a tool of French-Canadian nation building uh, and how New England wants to import hydropower down here to deal with our carbon emissions problem and how that's all very tricky and complicated because of the backstory of, of uh, sort of trampling of indigenous people's rights in the early development of, the, of that hydropower. But there have been big changes down here on the New England side, which Annie has been covering. 
so for me, we we sort of started this as like this was the zombie issue that never went away, and that I was constantly <laughs> covering forever. And now you're uh, you're taking over the beat. And so, how's that been? It kind of still feels like the zombie issue that might never go away. It's just it's entering a new phase of of its zombie life cycle. So, um, gosh, where to begin? So Northern Pass, which is the name of the project that was going to bring the hydropower down here that was sort of causing the most controversy in New Hampshire. So in January, um, Massachusetts picked Northern Pass to get this big contract where Massachusetts basically said, we want to kind of say that your renewable power is part of our efforts to have renewable power and to cut our carbon emissions. Um, Massachusetts was going to give that... um, contract in Northern Pass, but Northern Pass did not have its permits yet in New Hampshire. It wasn't a sure thing. Uh, and so fast forward a week and New Hampshire decided not to give it a permit. And so now here we are kind of wondering what's going to happen next. And that was surprising, right? Yes, it was a huge surprise. I mean, they did 70 days of hearings and that was like court style proceedings oh where they, they collected evidence and they cross-examined people and objected and, and did all of that stuff. And then um, and they got, I think, 4,500 comments uh, written comments from members of the public, almost all like all but like 200 of them were against the project. There was a huge, you know, campaign on both sides to, you know, lots of shirts and hats and signs and craziness. Bus loads of supporters and opponents. Yep. And, and colors, you know, orange versus blue-ish. I think the Northern Pass, the pro-Northern Pass people kind of wore blue and green. Green, yeah. And the anti-Northern Pass people wore orange. Yeah. So I've lived in New Hampshire now for two weeks, and I did notice all of those Northern Pass yeah. yellow, orangey signs. Yep. Stop Northern Pass. Yeah. Northern, Northern Pass. Yep. Yeah. So at the end of all those hearings, the uh, the site evaluation committee, which is the body that has to basically decide if it gets to build or not, um, kind of weighed everything that they had heard and decided that um, the project didn't meet this one test that it had to pass. And that test was that it wouldn't affect the orderly development of the region, which means that it basically would mess up towns' planning efforts and like ability to do what they wanted to do with their land um, and and their long-term plans for what they were going to do with their land. And that happened really quickly, right? I it mean, did. Yeah, they were gonna they were gonna spend twelve days arguing about this, and they took three of them, and then they voted, and then it was over. Like suddenly, it was like we hit a wall. It was crazy. This is far from over. Eversource says they're going to appeal. Uh, that might go to the state supreme court. Um, so that's why I say we're kind of in a new zombie phase because it's it's never going to end. And so this means Massachusetts has no idea what to do. Well, and so that's the, the big question, right? Because because our series did not focus on Northern Pass specifically. It focused on Hydro-Quebec. Um, so so then does this mean, like if you were a lay listener, you might think that means that New England's not going to be getting its energy from Hydro-Quebec, or it's not going to increase the amount of energy it gets from Hydro-Quebec. But uh, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. So there, um, when the decision first came out that they weren't going to get their permit, Hydro-Quebec said that Northern Pass was their plan A, and they had a plan B and a plan C to seal the deal with Massachusetts, basically. So their plan is to get the power down here, and they didn't sound too worried about making that happen. So they're basically going to look for another another state that borders Massachusetts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have, they have other... Um, I think one of them is the line that goes under Lake Champlain. Is that right? And then another. There's there are all these different kinds of proposals for basically other kinds of transmission lines. There were five transmission lines total, two in New Hampshire, uh, the Northern Pass, which was pretty far along, and another one that was brand new, very recently announced. 
Um, and then there was one in Vermont that goes under Lake Champlain and has all its permits already. Uh, and then there was another in Maine. So they hit the three states, you know, yeah. Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. And there was one in like the Gulf of Maine that went offshore to Massachusetts, kind right. of via like the Cape Cod area. But didn't connect to Hydro-Quebec. <laughs> that one connected to their competitor, oh, okay. Nalcor, um, which is building a dam in uh, Labrador called Muskrat Falls, which is also incredibly controversial. And we did not talk about it all in our series. But same controversy where you have indigenous people feeling like, their land is being taken from them, and they're not being properly comp- compensated. Yeah. So, stuff's happening yeah. all the of a sudden. Continues. <laughs> <laughs> I know. All right. All of a sudden. What has been the environmental response, the enviros, <laughs> to this northern pass? Yeah. So it's it's been really interesting to hear people like to hear sort of the Monday morning quarterbacking on the northern pass decision. You know about. Well, was this actually bad or or did we just not like where it was going to go? And I've been really interested in how absent the controversy around Hydro-Quebec has been from the conversation in New Hampshire even now. They worried about Northern Pass because of where the power lines were going to go. But they didn't really worry about what was going into those power lines and where it was coming from. Yeah, I mean, I think I think like so Sierra Club continues to be against any importation of Canadian hydropower, but they're the one environmental group that is sort of steadfastly against this. And that that sort of points to their heritage as being started by John Muir, you know, in opposition to a dam. (laughs) And uh, but but a lot of the environmental organizations have a lot of them have just been sort of quiet about hydropower generally, because I think the environmental movement has evolved to the point where they are freaked out enough about climate change that they might be willing to accept the importation of, of big hydro from Canada. Um, and there, th- and it's true. There was, you know, this sort of energy Twitter, clean energy Twitter, <laughs> which I like am <laughs> too plugged into. So to speak. Yeah, did did uh, lose his mind a little bit because a lot of a lot of people saw this as as like we can't build anything. We have these big ideas about climate change, but when we try to build anything, you know, yeah, you the, won't let anything go forward. Right. Yeah. So, but but that sort of misses the point that you know there's only so much surplus from Canada. And so there are only so many power lines that can get energized. And, and really the question gets down to what's the best route through New England? Yeah, the best power line. If you're going to bring the power here, you know, Massachusetts, it, where it's going to get like 17 percent of its energy period from this one source if Northern Pass went through. And that is a big boost of non-carbon emitting power. Yeah, it would go from like 9 to 17 basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. OK, how'd we do? I think good. I think I get it. (laughs) I listened to the series, but it's different to be here. Now it's like apparently something that I will be hearing about for ever and ever. (laughs) Are there any updates with the tribes? (laughs) Oh, so, okay. So this is the other thing that that uh, that has happened. It's not a it's not like a huge um, groundbreaking change, but. You know, essentially, a lot of our series focused on the fact that um, the Pessimate Innus, who are who are one of the nations that um, were first dealing with the impacts of hydropower on their territory, and they were essentially 
angling to get Hydro-Quebec to sit down at the negotiating table with them by mounting a campaign of the likes that the Cree mounted when when uh, the Crees were dealing with the James Bay project. Um, and, uh, you know, we started to hear rumblings about uh, perhaps perhaps negotiations beginning when we were writing up the Powerline uh, scripts, but nothing came of it. And then finally in January, uh, the Boston Globe came out with a story. They went up and visited the same folks that we visited. And when their story came out, they revealed that, in fact, uh, the chief of the pessimist had been to a closed door meeting with, with some of the higher ups at Hydro-Quebec. And it looks like negotiations over some sort of settlement are are gonna get underway. Um, who knows what the heck that would look like, or even if they would manage to get to yes, get to a deal. But uh, looks like the pessimists are are at least getting the beginnings of what they wanted. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really interesting that Northern Pass has kind of sparked maybe some of that because Hydro right. Quebec was totally absent from all of the negotiating about Northern Pass in New Hampshire, like really notably absent, I and mean, they didn't have to be part of the application and. So they were just this like shadowy backer, basically, um, and and all of their baggage, you know, was was also as absent. So, um, so that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and 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 the reason I think the reason the pessimists are getting these negotiations are because they've attracted international media attention, and it's not hasn't been a, a you know a boatload. It was like us, the Boston Globe, a few other a few other reporters here or there. But you can just tell Hydric Beck is really sensitive to their image abroad. Do you think that that has something to do with what was going on in North Dakota, though, too? I mean, I wonder if the like ex- exposure there and all of the attention and somewhat horrible things that happened there also, they were like, oh, we don't want to be them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Maybe we need to have a meeting. Didn't yeah. want to so, get any worse than it already yeah. looked or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely in a bit of a moment. And, and they, yeah, nobody wants to be the painted as the bad guy. Right. Hmm. Okay. Thanks, Annie. Thank you. Okay, so uh, we're going to update a bunch of other stories as well. So I'm going to take the opportunity to bring Taylor back into the studio. Taylor Quimby, our, uh, you know... You don't know my title. Fearless you still Taylor don't know Quimby. My title. It's changing. Uh, senior, senior producer. Yeah. Um, but yes, I've been here since the beginning uh, as well. So I can I can help you, Erica, bring you up to speed. Thank you. I need it. Do you have any particular episodes that you that you wish were updated? Beavers. <laughs> it yeah. was a really good episode. All right. We can update it. So it did get to a point where I finally said, "All right." I'm going to learn how to trap them, and we're going to eat them. Um, so wait, what did you like about that episode? I just, I think they're just magical creatures. <laughs> and I just thought, found that whole episode so fascinating. I could not stop talking about it. So, and I would, to, you know, if you haven't heard the story, I would say that the, my, my short summary is, basically it's the story of how we as a society sort of laid a trap for ourselves, where we, we um, killed all the beavers in a huge portion of the United States and Canada, uh, and then built our society on top of all the places where they like to build dams and ponds, and then and then reintroduce them. Uh, our narrative structure was based around a human being who became rather controversial to certain people. 
um, Carol Leonard, who went on to build a house in Maine that had beaver problems. She was coming into conflict with beavers all the time. She started out by not wanting to trap them and install these things called flow devices, which are basically they drain the pond and trick the beavers into thinking that, you know, nothing's wrong. But she was unable to make the flow devices work. And after seven years of trying them, she gave up and got her trapper's license and started to trap and eat the beavers. Um, This led to a blog post being written by a prominent beaver blogger. Uh, this is the, the the Martinez beavers. So Martinez, California has some like urban beavers that they've learned to coexist with. And they've been sort of evangelists for, for doing this, for instead of trapping beavers when there's a conflict, figure out how to coexist with them. And the, the sort of spokeswoman for the Martinez beavers wrote an article that compared our story to a modest proposal. <laughs> 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 Which is to say that that it was it was like we were advocating for if you if you can't beat the beavers then eat them. So I called a guy named Ben Goldfarb. Is he a beaver blogger? He is a beaver believer. Okay, is that <laughs> self self described? <laughs> he also believes that uh, any of us will become beaver believers if we just read his book that he's about to publish. <laughs> sure. So the book is called um, "Eager: The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter." And one of the things he said is that uh, basically the early research on flow devices is is now being updated by people who are installing them better. They've actually changed a lot in sophistication as we've sort of figured out how best to to flummox a beaver. And he points to a study that was done in Alberta, Canada. What she did was she, she installed um, 12 flow devices at this recreation area near uh, Edmonton in, in Alberta. Um, and then, you know, she sort of monitored uh, their effectiveness. Where they um, were able to save one municipality like $200,000. $200, in, in avoided maintenance costs. It is his belief that there will be this new generation of flow device practitioners who will prove that that these are super, super effective. We're, we're going to move from a world in which the primary way we deal with these beaver conflicts is trapping to a world where, where there are more folks who know how to install these things properly and they're going to go preach the gospel and make beaver believers out of all of us. That's his thesis. I think there should be beaver water parks <laughs> where we we just create these giant domes and lots of running water in them and then we put beavers in and then we let people like hang with the beavers as they build dams. That's amazing. I feel like something like that probably already exists in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Would that be safe though? They have big teeth. <laughs> beavers do attack. Oh? Uh, the CBC interviewed a gentleman who got attacked by a beaver. So would this be, I'm looking on the internet right now, this would be in the CBC Digital Archives, a story called Beaver Attack. Yes. Beavers are cool and all, but they are wild animals. And they you are, should, absolutely. You should give them some space. Now, did you have big boots on to protect well, your feet? heavy runner, heavy sole runners on, and he'd, uh, he'd grab me, thank God that he got me the full foot, like, and he couldn't, apparently couldn't close his jaw right he, drove one tooth into the top of my foot, but he couldn't penetrate the bottom. But he just hung on, just kind of shaking. And so I got on down on the, my other foot down on the bridge and started trying to kick him off, which I finally did. I got him off, stood on his head. This goes on for quite a while. Sam, this is a six-minute story. How did you, <laughs> can you just yeah, tell us what happens? Is he okay? Uh, well, the beaver gets him again in sort of the sort of like belt waist area. Well, I don't know what he was after. I was kind of wondering if he wasn't after my honeymoon jewels or something. <laughs> oh! <laughs> scared the life out of me. Holy cow, Ben. 
So I got him, but the damn thing had no ears on. And then, but so then he's like bleeding profusely from the torso and has to like go to the hospital, but the hospital's closed because it's, it's like a clinic, it's rural Canada. And so then he like finds somebody who's a nurse in his town and she sort of stitches him up. But yeah, no, I mean, like this beaver gets him, gets him good. Wow. Don't, don't hang out with beavers. Okay. Nick's the water park idea. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I was, I was going to maybe handle the Kiwi episode. I'm going to show you how a summary is done. This is how you reduce a complicated story to its core conflict. Okay. And basically, the question is, there is a berry, a kiwi berry. I guess it's not really a berry. It's a kiwi, but it's grape-sized. And there's a guy who wants to grow them and sell them and have them be the next blueberry, this like big, wonderful market because they can survive in the cold. But the question is... Is it an invasive species or is it this like cash crop? Popped one in my mouth and it was just, you just wonder like how can you be on a planet for three decades and no one just ever tell you that there's something like that, like that out there. It was really upsetting. So that was three years ago. Oh, wow. Three years that we've been doing this show. Sam, are the kiwi berries any closer to becoming a thing? There is an update on this, so that we we sort of left things off where Massachusetts was considering whether to declare it an invasive species oh, wow. and ban sale. Iago Hale, the 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 researcher, is up here in New Hampshire, so it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily immediately put the kibosh on his his operation, but you know it it definitely is a step in the wrong direction. And so, if one state declares it invasive, would others follow suit? The committee in question met, and they basically said, "We don't have enough evidence," hmm. and so they said. We're going to put the brakes on this for now. We're going to keep watching. Isn't there, I mean, isn't it kind of a moot point for um, the gentleman we just heard from if he can't get people to like want to eat them though? Because that's the thing is it's not as though in the past three years I have seen the kiwi berry except for the time that you brought them in for that story. So definitely like developing a new cash crop is super hard and you have to convince people to that they want them. And, and there are other barriers apart from just the fact that this might be an invasive species in, in Iago Hale's way, which are things like, how do they look? Do they, you know, yeah, how do they look? That's what I was wondering. Well, so here's the tricky bit. They're tastiest when they, when they get really, really ripe. And when they get really, really ripe, they start to get like a little wrinkly and look old. Yeah. Kind of like the persimmon problem. Yeah. Oh, I don't know persimmons. You can only eat them when they're like, look like they're about to, like they should be composted. That's when you should eat them. Which is probably why I, I've not had a persimmon. There, there might also be solutions to his invasive problem if that were to become one, which is selective breeding for traits that would make it less invasive. All right. Should we go to a break? Uh, we can go to a break. Let's have a kiwi berry break. Look at us anticipating needing a break. <laughs> it's on my checklist of things to remind you now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's take a quick break and uh, more updates to come. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. 
you know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Lale Arakoplu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. I say we come back with a quickie. And are you participating in these? Me? Yeah. Oh, hell yeah! <laughs> are you kidding me? This is my, this is my jam. <laughs> okay, just make sure. <laughs> I bet you I could do some of these incredibly fast. If it's more than one sentence, you failed. All right, game's on. So I think I'm in better shape than most adults in some ways. Um, usually on the mountain, I like just passing everybody up to the summit. It sounds like you're pretty competitive about this. Yes. Okay, so that a few years ago was then 11-year-old Tyler Armstrong who wanted to be the youngest person to climb Mount Everest. So we did an episode on whether or not that is an ethically good idea or not from the point of view of personal risk and risk to those that are helping to guide you. And he didn't end up climbing Everest. Was that one sentence? It was a run-on. It was a little <laughs> bit of a run-on. You had an editor. <laughs> that editor would edit that sentence. <laughs> okay, fair. Who made the decision that he wasn't going to do it? China. Yeah, he didn't get a permit oh. twice. Applied twice, didn't get it either time. And and so that's the update for this story is that he is has still not climbed Mount Everest. He has now climbed, I think, five of the seven tallest peaks on the seven continents. Um, he has yet to do Antarctica. And Everest still is outside of his grasp. They, they passed something that basically said you can't do it until you're 17 or 18. I think it's 18. Yeah. Facts don't matter. The current youngest person to do it was 13. So he's, passed, he's now past the age where he could be the youngest person to climb Everest. Um, but I think he's still hoping to be the youngest person to climb all seven of the highest peaks. He's a great, he's a great climber by all measures. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. Probably better, and this is the point that's made in the story, probably better than many people who climb Everest. Absolutely. But it's dangerous for everybody who does it. Right. Yeah, we don't have to retread. Stop retreading. <laughs> no, the update here is he has not climbed Everest. Yeah, the update done. is a lack of update. <laughs> there, the record has not been broken. That's it. It's like the Kiwi Berry. Lack of update. Oh, gosh. Is that what this actually is? It's a lack of update show? No updates show. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Sam, you take the next one. Let's see. What's the next one? Uh, Do you want to do a quick whales update? This is not fun, but we can do a quick it. Yeah. There's nothing that's enough to stop a right whale. They're designed to swim through the water with their mouths open for hour after hour after hour. They're like a freight train. So right whales are a critically endangered whale species, and this year was terrible for right whales. Uh, there were 14 that were found dead in a population of uh, around 500, now less than 500. Um, and and uh, the scientists who study them came out with a model that say that at, the, at their current population level, their current reproduction level, and current death rate on, you know, averaged out, not just counting this year's death rate, um, it is a species that is in decline. Um, so the, part of, there's a lot of reasons for this, and, and part of it is that um, you know they think it's kind of a climate change story because the whales were getting up into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Usually they would, they would sort of peek out in the Bay of Fundy and sort of like off of Nova Scotia. And, uh, and this, now they were like rounding the corner and we're in the Gulf of St. Lawrence where there's heavy, heavy ship traffic 
that is not accustomed to dealing with these whales. Uh, and so there were ship strikes. Uh, there were fishermen who don't have the same restrictions that um, the fishers down in New England have. And so they had like gotten themselves into an even more dangerous territory. Um, so 14 deaths in one year, which is extremely high. So so h- help me understand this, because a big part of this story was about um, entanglement, where fishing ropes, uh, the whales sort of, you know, they swim into them, they get tangled up. It's really nasty. They can like, you know, like really just cut off big pieces of their bodies. Um, and it's almost like that's where our problem lies because we've solved some of these other issues. But if the whales are moving because of climate change, they're moving to places where fishing regulations are further behind? Well, so both things. So, so yeah, thank you, by the way, for doing the summary that I failed to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, the, here in New England, ship strikes were a bigger problem. So large boats hitting the whales because they didn't see them. And, you know, first like a concussive blow from the bow of the ship, but then also getting them getting hit by propellers. So like lacerations because of that would kill whales. Um, they had this whole system of buoys that they put in that would hear when there were whales coming through and would send a signals to, signal to boats saying you have to slow down your speed so that if they did hit a whale, the the damage would be less because they're going slower. Uh, and that was successful. Like, their, like ship strike fatalities dropped dramatically. None of those regulations are in place up in Canada. Okay, well, that is a sad update. No. <clears throat> yeah. Why don't we move to... Narpal. Let's play it and then and then we'll see if we can get the update. Okay. So let me text them. Here, I'll text them while you're playing it. Bigger, 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 bigger. Push in. There you go, there you go, there you go. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like this. Oh my god, this sucks. Is, is it my turn to summarize or did you? Did you kind of fail on the whale story, so it's still yours? (laughs) (laughs) Your call. You're the senior producer over there. Okay. All right, 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 right. I'm going to do it. Okay. As I love summaries. And the basis of this story is that Jimmy, uh, our producer, and Maureen, uh, who used to have your job as executive producer but has now moved on to a director position, uh, both of them had never been skiing. And so Sam took them out skiing first to sort of like a big mountain with lots of stuff going on and uh, Maureen hated it. She was very intimidated and then Sam took her to one of these sort of smaller community uh, you know like little town mountains um, that used to be dotted all over New Hampshire and New England um, and they had a much more fun time and it was cheaper and all that good stuff. We also learned that I'm terrible, terrible, terrible at teaching people how to alpine ski. And we squeezed in a climate change story at the end uh, about the fact that um, snowmakers and things like that are one of the only ways that mountains can continue to operate and so you have to have a lot of capital to do that and so you're going to have more big ski resorts fewer little community resorts and maybe eventually no ski resorts in new hampshire at all <laughs> wow that voice yeah that's amazing <laughs> that's, a, that's a theater whisper it was sort of like a batman whisper is kind of what i heard it as yeah, but yeah. Me too. <laughs> the cave of wonders <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 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 the big question is, did Maureen and Jimmy continue to ski? No, they didn't. They have not gone skiing. <laughs> okay, another non-update. <laughs> Moving on. I I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> woo! Ski.
Mikey is so fancy! So we are now left with a one final update. And this is kind of less of an update than an extension, but let's find if I can see the clip. Is it this one? Any trail crew guy worth his shit. He would rather have mushrooms growing out of his underwear, if in fact he wore underwear, than he would ever be caught with his axe dull or not ready to go. You see what I'm saying? I don't see what he's saying. <laughs> he's saying uh, personal hygiene comes second versus trail crew performance. All right, so give us the summary on this one, Sam. The summary is that this was the story of the AMC's uh, TFC, which if you're talking to your grandmother, stands for Trail Fixing Crew. If you're talking to a friend, it's Trail Fucking Crew. I'd say that ultimately it's a story about how when you're walking out in, quote, nature, unquote, really you're having an experience that's mediated by trail work. Um, but it's also kind of the story of this unique culture on this particular crew. Now, now, when you were working on this story, Sam, I remember that there was all these people that would talk about the legendary stories of hijinks and mayhem uh, perpetrated by the TFC. But then when it came to getting people on tape and it came to getting people telling you all those stories, a lot of people sort of backed down. And that continues. What happened was we put the story out and... Someone who uh, will remain anonymous but who did work for the Appalachian Mountain Club reached out and said, you missed the big story and proceeded to tell me this story. Um, I then called up some of the folks that I talked to and they confirmed that this indeed was a legend that they had heard of. So I then tried to reach out to, to find the people who were involved and what happened was I touched off a firestorm on the, <laughs> amongst the trail crew crowd as to whether or not anyone should be telling this story to me. Um, some people assert that it's actually not true. Uh, some people basically just say it makes them look bad so they don't want to talk about it. But I have an insane rumor that I was unable to confirm. Let's call it legend. I like legend. Yeah. <laughs> the legend is this. Uh you know the Cog Railway? Mm -hmm. The Cog Railway is a tourist train that goes to the top of Mount Washington, and it's very steep, and there are lots of famous photos of people standing on it, and it, because it's steep, it's impressive. Um, the Cog Railway was steaming up the mountain. Uh, at some point, I think we're talking like 90s, again, unverified, because I have not talked to the people who are actually involved. And a member of the trail crew sat in the middle of the tracks. The train had to stop because this person was there. The rest of the trail crew rushed onto the train with their uh, axes and woodworking tools and took everyone's wallets. They then cleared out and sprinted to the top of the mountain. The cog resumed its chugging, reached the summit, and the trail crew was there and ha 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 gave everyone back their wallets and purses. <laughs> Good joke. They were all immediately fired. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, the AMC, you know, was incredibly embarrassed. Uh, but after, after a little while, realized they couldn't fire all these people because they didn't have a system of training in place for their trail crews except for this sort of, like, oral transmission of knowledge. So they had to hire the trail crew back on and just give them a stern talking to and say, don't do this again. You know how you can tell this was in the 90s? It's because it was definitely before 9-11 when, yes. <laughs> when hijacking <laughs> right. a train with axes would have been seen very differently. I also just keep thinking they didn't have any training, and I'm like, 
isn't it just kind of standard, I don't know, societal norms that you shouldn't rush at people <laughs> with axes and woodworking tools? I mean, I, do I need a training? of? I've not been trained about that either, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what, this is like one of the byproducts of this culture that they've created, right? Which is, which is like, uh, you know, jokes and hijinks are okay. It's just that it got out of control at times. And we should, and I want to like throw in the caveats here because you know hashtag journalism, which is that uh, this remains this remains a legend. I do not know for sure if this happened or if it happened the way it was described to me by two people, but two people who were not there. Sam, this doesn't jive with your facts don't matter theme. Right. <laughs> You've been spouting this whole update show. So, Erica, do you feel updated? I do feel kind of updated by some of these (laughs) non-updates. So before we say goodbye, um, I don't know how you feel about this, Sam, but uh, I feel like there is a personal update that maybe should be made because you will soon be taking a small temporary break from the show for a very wonderful reason. Yeah, uh, we're having a baby. Woo-woo! Like maybe next week. Maybe later today. Maybe later today. So anyway, uh, congratulations and have a good paternity leave. Thanks, man. You know, just make sure the station doesn't burn down and I'll be back soon. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No guarantee I won't come in with an axe, though. I haven't haven't (laughs) been trained. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, Erica Janik, and Taylor Quimby, with help from Justine Paradise, Jimmy Gutierrez, Han McCarthy, and Maureen McMurray. Thanks today to Tom Merwinski and Dave Conrad for updating us on stories. If you've got a story that you'd like us to cover, you should get in touch. We're always excited to be talking to folks on the interwebs. You can reach us on Twitter and Facebook at Outside In Radio. And as always, if you have a specific nature-y question that you want us to answer, you should give us a call. The number is 1-844-GO-OTTER. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Music